Episode 46 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 9.2, Post-Visit Wars. The wars I will discuss in this episode are the most devastating in Nephite history. They feature the greatest abuses of human dignity, the most significant losses in geography, and the greatest loss of life. Despite all of these superlatives, these are not the most recorded or the most detailed wars or battles in the Book of Mormon. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Given the size, the loss of life, the geopolitical impact, and the personal experience of the writer with these wars, one would think they would have generated much more commentary. Elsewhere in this podcast series, I have commented that the reasons for the discrepancy or disparity between Mormon's personal experience and connection with the events and the level of detail of the recorded events are, to a degree, included in Mormon's metaphor and the fact he was teaching us about our relationship with God through that metaphor rather than relating history. The historical details of Nephite civilization and society are of a limited secondary importance in Mormon's record, and I believe that he shared the details of the wars that we will discuss in this episode somewhat reluctantly and only as necessary to provide an epilogue to what I believe to be the book's climax, which is the visit of Jesus Christ and the subsequent near-perfect societal unity resulting therefrom. In this episode, I will discuss the three wars that Mormon commanded in total or in part. They were the second post-visit war from 327 to 330 AD, the third post-visit war from 344 to 350 AD, and the fourth post-visit war from 361 to 367 AD. I will address the fifth and final post-visit war in the next episode as part of the battle analysis of the Battle of Hill Cumorah. As always, the point that I will emphasize throughout this episode is that Mormon teaches and has taught us through the details that we can glean from the stories that he gives us. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Second Post-Visit War, 327-330 to AD. Mormon's age, approximately 15 to 19 years old. Recorded in Mormon Chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. This war was Mormon's first war in command. He was a young man, a 15-year-old, as we are told in Mormon 2.2. Think of the young men you know. For example, the ones who prepare the sacrament each week at church. These boys are the same age as was this commander of tens of thousands. Mormon's age and his selection as commander were discussed in the previous episode. Mormon was a young, inexperienced commander who did not appear to have the confidence of his army. This is not surprising. He did gain that respect and confidence over time. We will see his effective leadership in the last portion of this war and in the following wars, but he started with three consecutive failures that must have graded on his followers and their loyalty, as well as on his own self-confidence. 
The fact that Mormon continued in command despite this poor initial showing is a testimony to the strength of his position, either through the respect of the decision that placed him in command, or through the growing respect within the army, or possibly both. This war started with what seems to be a Nephite offensive operation, as Mormon uses the words for Mormon 2-2, quote, I did go forth at the head of an army of the Nephites against the Lamanites, close quote. It is unclear, but the verbiage go forth at the head of an army leads one toward an image of Mormon marching out at the head of his army. Maybe the Lamanites were already in the land, and Mormon is referring to a Nephite counterattack or a Nephite response to a siege. Mormon does not say, so I am sticking with some sort of offensive operation and possible intended open field battle. Regardless, Mormon does say in Mormon 2-3 that his army did not even get into an actual open field engagement, but rather they fled at the sight of their opponents. The army retreated toward the north countries. This was an ignominious beginning for the new and very young commander. To his credit, Mormon was able to refocus his army on defending the city Angola, as we are told in Mormon 2.4, where he got his warriors to fortify the city. As I mentioned in the previous episode, we don't have any details on what Mormon meant by fortify in terms of how deliberate or how much committed effort. After refusing an open field battle, the army failed in the defense and they again fled, though this time Mormon uses the phrase, did drive us out, in Mormon 2.4, which connotes a fighting withdrawal and not the seemingly undisciplined flight before the face of the enemy, as may have happened in the first battle. Based on my interpretation, Mormon and his army were again forced into a fighting withdrawal from the city of David, though Mormon refers to the land of David, which could mean that the Nephite army was unable to occupy the city and had to fight an open field battle or simply continue the flight through the land without stopping. I still record this battle as a city defense and imagine that Mormon was able to occupy David and hold it to some degree before continuing on the retreat, as we are told in Mormon 2.5. Mormon had three failures in succession. Few ancient commanders could have sustained that and survived in command. Mormon did survive, and the army moved to another location. This time, it was the land of Joshua. Mormon states in Mormon 2.7 that they gathered the people that they might get them together in one body. This harkens one back to the consolidated settlement in the days of Laconius and Gidgidoni that I discussed in detail in episode 43, or part 7.6 of this podcast series, and is explained in 3 Nephi chapters 3 and 4. The story of the consolidated settlement is a reminder of the great importance of physical unity. The king of the Lamanites, Aaron, led his army against Mormon in the battle at Joshua. He brought 44,000 against Mormon and his 42,000. Mormon won the battle and caused the Lamanite king to flee before him. This is an amazing story, especially when considering the probability that the Nephite army was demoralized 
They had a teenager in command who had led the army in three consecutive losses, and yet they stood strong against a larger army. Granted that it was only slightly larger, but it was still a larger army, and they stood against it. The casualties and results of the war overall are not stated. It is also unclear how many and which Nephite cities were lost or retained by Mormon. I believe that the battles in the second post-visit war were a relatively linear retreat, and that much of the land southward was probably lost in this war. This is by no means certain. It is possible that Mormon, in his words about the Lamanite king fleeing before him, may be referring to a reconquest of all of the lost Nephite cities. I am dubious of this interpretation. It is clear to me that until there is a greater understanding of the geography of the Book of Mormon lands of this time period, one cannot read too much into broad interpretations of results. What we do know from the record is that Zarahemla is not mentioned again, nor are any of the cities in the land southward. This omission causes me to think that through this war, nearly all of the other cities and population centers south of the narrow neck were lost during the fighting in the second post-visit war. If this were true, then this ranks as probably the greatest loss of life and land by the Nephites in their history. Third Post-Visit War, 344 to 350 AD. Mormon's age, 32 to 38. Recorded in Mormon chapter 2, generally in verses 16 through 27. The beginning of this war is shrouded as Mormon gives no idea as to the initial step. We join the war in progress, as it were, with the statement from Mormon 2.15, quote, I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land, close quote. And from Mormon 2.16, quote, the Nephites did begin to flee before the Lamanites, close quote. It may be assumed that the first comment refers either to battles in the regained land southward or to the battle and loss of the land Joshua, where the second post-visit war ended. Since the end state of the second post-visit war is unclear and there are no definitive statements of the beginning of the third post-visit war, then the listener is free to select whichever course one prefers. My interpretation is the second option, the defense and loss of Joshua. The Nephites fled a great distance based on Mormon's frustrated words in Mormon 2.16. The third post-visit war was a drawn-out affair with major fighting seemingly only happening during a season of fighting each year. It seems to have been a common feature of war in the ancient world to have a fighting season that was often connected in some cyclical way with planting and harvesting seasons. It makes sense that such a pattern of behavior may have taken place at this point in the Book of Mormon history. People needed to live, and that meant that they needed to eat, which means that they needed to plant and harvest food every year. The Lamanites, according to my interpretation and following the seasonal logic just explained, took Joshua in 344 AD and forced the flight of the Nephites to Jashon. 
the Nephites defended and lost Jashon in 345 AD and were hunted and driven as they fled and were gathered in the city of Shem, as we are told in Mormon chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. The battle at Shem happened in 346 AD. Mormon's great ability to withstand what must have been overwhelming frustration and despair was demonstrated as he encouraged and rallied his army to stand and fight, as he tells us in Mormon chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Not only did he get his army to stop its relentless retreats, but he also got his fighters to stand against an army nearly twice their size, 30,000 Nephites versus 50,000 Lamanites, as given in Mormon 2, verse 25. The Nephites won. This is a spectacular event in the annals of military history. Rarely does a commander so outnumbered achieve victory and Mormon provided no details of how he or his army achieved this amazing feat, other than expressing Mormon's reminder of sacred oaths and priorities. Again, the prophet and applied historian points toward covenants as a critical source of strength and power, even when the people were wicked and undeserving. To add to the significance of this accomplishment, I want to point out that Mormon was, at this point, a failing commander. He had lost three major battles and won only one in his first war, and he began this war by the loss of Joshua, a general retreat that involved continual casualties and losses, a win at Jashon followed by a loss of that city, and another general retreat, and then this spectacular victory against significant odds. I, for one, wish that we had more details on how Mormon created and led success at Shem. Mormon led his victorious army from the city Shem out against the Lamanites in another battle and once again was victorious. Mormon emphasizes that this victory was not empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, but rather, he points out, that they won despite being as weak as their brethren. Mormon then states in Mormon 2.27, that the Nephites fought against the Gadianton robbers and the Lamanites to regain the lands of their inheritance. The fact that the Nephites were fighting both opponents and that the robbers were a separate entity is important to note as this provides greater insight into the flight and the lack of cohesion. It is possible that the robbers functioned within Nephite society until this time and chose this war as the time to separate themselves and possibly create internal dissension sufficient to collapse the Nephite state completely. Another reason for the importance of this distinction is the later comments by Moroni in Mormon chapter 8 about continual fighting after the Battle of Hill Cumorah. It is probable that this fighting was between Lamanites and robbers. It is unclear what Mormon meant by his lands of our inheritance comment. It seems unlikely that he was referring to the Nephite armies regaining all of the lands, including the land of Zarahemla. If that had been true, then why would Mormon and the Nephites return this great Nephite capital in a treaty only three years later, which is what they will do when they give away all the land southward? 
It is more likely to me that Mormon meant all of the land north of the narrow neck over which they had fought during much of the war. It took the Nephites three years of fighting to regain this land, whatever this land meant at that time, as they only did so in 349 AD, as we are told in Mormon 2.28. The following year, the war was ended by a treaty which divided the lands accordingly, as we are told in Mormon chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Quote, And in the 350th year we made a treaty with the Lamanites and the robbers of Gadianton, in which we did get the lands of our inheritance divided. And the Lamanites did give unto us the land northward, yea, even to the narrow passage which led into the land southward. And we did give unto the Lamanites all of the land southward. Close quote. The Nephites were then completely hemmed in and limited to an area that was uninhabited by Nephites for most of the pre-Christ era. The Lamanites and Gadianton robbers had the land to the south, and as previously stated, the nature of robbers meant that this treaty would not be permanent. Fourth Post-Visit War, 361-367 AD. Mormon's Age, 48 to 55, recorded in Mormon chapters 3 and 4, specifically in chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 15. The fourth post-visit war was a war of complexities and changes. Mormon began the war as the Nephite commander and ended the war as a mute witness of the wickedness of the people. He resigned his position at about the age of 52, or four years into the war. The war was preceded by nearly 10 years of defensive preparations by the Nephites. These were preparations that clearly paid off in the early part of the war. It is important to remember that though there is no scoreboard in warfare, and few soldiers or warriors really focus on anything more than the previous battle, the Nephites under Mormon had had a very poor showing. Mormon's experience as a historian may have allowed him to look at the sequence of events and have a deeper and more balanced perspective than his warriors, who seemed to only focus on the last win and to have forgotten the undisciplined retreats of earlier days. In this war, we see what I believe to be the benefits of Mormon's learning from the scriptures as he employed these supposed lessons in preparing their lands against the time of battle, as he tells us in Mormon 3, 1. I recommend to listeners that you pay attention for the echoes of Moroni and his efforts in times of peace to fortify the cities and lands of the Nephites. During the run-up to the fourth post-visit war, Mormon also tried to preach to his people and call them to repentance. But this effort failed, as Mormon explains in Mormon 3, 3. The king of the Lamanites sent an epistle to Mormon, and this was a warning of the impending battle. This letter was probably not the open expression of future conflict written by Gideonhai and discussed in detail in episode 43 or part 7.6, but must have been a more nuanced letter that identified pretexts that the Lamanites were using to justify war as Mormon uses less direct wording when he says in Mormon 3, 4, quote, 
gave unto me to know that they were preparing to come again to battle against us. Close quote. This was not a direct warning of war, but threats and grievances. Mormon formed his people in what was clearly the most defensible terrain, the land desolation, which must have been linked by the defensive preparations and fortifications with the narrow pass mentioned in Mormon 3.5. Mormon again emphasizes in verse 6 that the Nephites did fortify against the Lamanites with all their force. In this instance, fortification probably refers to the people manning defenses as well as improving or building physical barriers. The defense of desolation had to be Mormon's greatest achievement as a commander. The success at Shem was clearly his greatest example of leadership and probably his greatest accomplishment in terms of tactical brilliance. But here he used all of his knowledge to prepare defenses that gave confidence such that the Lamanite armies broke against them. The Lamanites failed in two consecutive battle seasons, both in 361 and 362 AD, to achieve any measure of success against the defenses Mormon had his people construct, as recorded in Mormon 3, 7-8. This was complete tactical and operational dominance on the part of the Nephites. They recognized the strength of their own position, but they confused the strength of defense for their own strength in arms, which caused them to boast and swear oaths to avenge themselves against the Lamanites. The nature of the Nephite oaths, and certainly the short-sightedness and failure to recognize why they had succeeded, frustrated, and annoyed Mormon to the point where he resigned his command, and he did, and I quote, utterly refuse to be a commander and a leader of this people, close quote, which comes from Mormon chapter 3, verses 9 and 14. There is no mention of spies in any of Mormon's accounts of the battles that he fought in his lifetime, and therefore we cannot know what kind of networks existed. However, it seems in the decisions that were made by the Nephites that possibly the Lamanites knew what they were planning. It is important to remember that Gadianton robbers were present in the land, and that those secret combinations probably existed both among the Nephites and the Lamanites, and members of such an organization would have communicated from one side to the other to express plans and objectives. In my thinking, either the Lamanites knew, through some form of spy network, their own or a robber network, or they were really lucky in that they had previously and unconnectedly called for significant reinforcements in a plan to attack desolation in the following campaigning season. Regardless of the reasons, instead of a Lamanite attack, the Nephites launched one of their own in 363 AD without Mormon as their commander. The Lamanites received the Nephite offensive and they defeated it. The Nephites retreated back to desolation, but a fresh Lamanite army came against them there. It is probable that both the original and the new Lamanite armies were involved in the attack on desolation. The prospect of loot in a potential sack of the city would have motivated any ancient army to continue the pressure of a defeated foe. The Nephites were forced to flee to the city Teancum. The Lamanites looted desolation and took prisoners. Mormon teaches a lot about the futility of war in the sequence of events that follow. 
He also spends time providing commentary on the error of the Nephites to leave desolation and go out against the Lamanites. And he provides one of his greatest observations, which comes in Mormon 4.5 and states, and I quote, It is by the wicked that the wicked are punished, close quote. The year 364 AD saw the Lamanites attack against the city Teancum. The Nephites won the battle in defense of the city, and then they counterattacked to regain desolation. Mormon gives a general loss figure in Mormon chapter 4 verse 9 of thousands for this series of battles. The losses in these campaigns are difficult to comprehend. In the previous post-visit wars, some of the battles were retreats, possibly without engagements. As the record provides, it is unclear if there were skirmishes or not. I imagine that there were, as I think that there may have been numerous small engagements and battles fought between the major fights in and around the cities as the armies repositioned, fled, marched, etc. In the battles in this war, the armies seem to have fought mostly in and around defensive fortifications. From such an environment, one might be led to believe that the casualties would be relatively high in terms of percentages of the attacking force. The size of forces is also conspicuously absent. It is clear that Mormon is not interested in recounting these events such that he only gives us a cursory rundown of major muscle movements on the battlefield. It is probable that the armies were in the tens of thousands each around every one of the battles at Desolation and Teancum. Previous numbers that Mormon did provide were in the neighborhood of 40,000 to 50,000 for the Lamanites, and this figure can probably serve as a relatively useful scale to use for the battles in the fourth post-visit war. That I've just recounted. Mormon did address relative size in the next attack of the Lamanites on desolation in 366 AD when he stated in Mormon 413 that the Lamanites won, quote, because their number did exceed the number of the Nephites, close quote. The Lamanites also succeeded in driving the fleeing Nephites out of Teancum. The Lamanites then sacrificed women and children prisoners from Teancum to idols, and this angered the Nephites, who were probably in the city Boaz, sufficient that they attacked in their anger and they were able to eject the Lamanites from all their lands, which means, to me, the lands of Teancum and Desolation. In my professional instruction, I invite students to watch and discuss war movies, Two of the movies we watch and or discuss are the nuclear war films Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb in 1964 and Failsafe, also released that same year. Both films are about the absurdity of nuclear war. The first is about the absurdity of total nuclear war and the second about the absurdity of limited nuclear war. I bring this up to point out that the sequence of battles that I have just described could be expressed as Mormon's attempt to illuminate the absurdity of war between wicked people. War, I believe in Mormon's mind, wasn't absurd when fought between the wicked and the mostly righteous, as then the people were fighting for and against God and his plan. 
when both sides are wicked, then no one is fighting for God at all, and it is all absurdity. The absurdity of this war can be expressed by articulating the sequence of battles. Desolation, Tiancum, desolation, desolation, Tiancum, Tiancum, desolation. It is almost comical just to recount it. But this sequence of battles may have accounted for deaths in the tens of thousands of people. What was the point of the seesaw destruction that these two cultures heaped upon each other? Of all the wars in the Book of Mormon, this one seems the most clearly to be pointless. Killing for the sake of killing. Only the reaction to the Lamanite atrocities seems to make sense. Lessons learned, spiritual. Mormon provides few details, but there are still some crumbs that he left behind that might lead us to useful lessons. I want to begin with lessons directly connected to Mormon's three points of emphasis of preparation, covenants, and unity. Preparation. I have two points here. One, read and study the scriptures. I believe that Mormon's studying of Moroni and Moroni's emphasis on fortifications as a collective form of protection was critical to the success at desolation. There is a profound truth here. Studying the scriptures doesn't just provide us with spiritual benefit, but doing so may, and I believe can, provide concrete and useful solutions to problems that we face in the world. If we study the scriptures to learn and know what to do in our actual life, then those answers will come to us. 2. Fortifications are the best protection against a powerful enemy. They allow a small force to have an outsized amount of strength. As I teach military history, I regularly ask students what the attacker-to-defender ratio should be when an attacker is attacking into a dense urban environment? The answer that usually comes is three to one. That answer is wrong. Three to one is the right ratio for an attacker against a hasty defense, any defense at all. If attacking a prepared defense, then the ratio should be closer to six to one. If attacking a prepared defense in a dense urban environment then the ratio should be 12 to 1. That means that the stronger you make your spiritual fortifications, the stronger your enemy must be, and your enemy isn't that strong. Fortifications work. Use them. Create and then stand in holy places. The greatest opportunity the Nephites had to live in some semblance of peace was provided by the extensive defensive preparations put into desolation. It is not clear whether or not these fortifications would have withstood the attacks of two Lamanite armies simultaneously, as seems to have been the Lamanite plan in Mormon 4, 1-2. But the strong fortifications were the Nephites' best hope. Covenants I want to discuss this point with a little detail by elaborating on the Battle of Shem in the Third Post-Visit War and then on covenants more broadly. Mormon's single greatest success as a military commander, and possibly as a spiritual leader, came in 346 AD. His people had fled and were being pursued and destroyed in their flight to the far extremes of the Nephite lands in what we have previously just called the land northward, 
Mormon gathered his people to the land and city of Shem. Here is how Mormon records it in Mormon chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. Quote, And it came to pass that in this year the people of Nephi again were hunted and driven. And it came to pass that we were driven forth until we had come northward to the land which was called Shem. And it came to pass that we did fortify the city of Shem, and we did gather in our people as much as it were possible, that perhaps we might save them from destruction. And it came to pass in the three hundred and forty and sixth year they began to come upon us again. And it came to pass that I did speak unto my people, and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites, and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. And my words did arouse them somewhat to vigor, insomuch that they did not flee from before the Lamanites, but did stand with boldness against them. And it came to pass that we did contend with an army of 30,000 against an army of 50,000. And it came to pass that we did stand before them with such firmness that they did flee from before us. Close quote. I ask you to think back to Alma chapter 46, verse 12, and the title of liberty. By the way, I believe this is another example of Mormon referring back to his study of the records and drawing a specific practical lesson from Moroni. The way that Mormon inspired his people to defend Shem was, in many ways, similar to the way that Moroni inspired his people to oppose Amalickiah, or previously, how Moroni inspired his men at the Battle of Manti that is expressed in Alma chapter 43, verse 48. Mormon strengthened his people by reminding them of their covenants. I think this is a powerful leadership tool to put in our toolbox. Unity. The successes at Joshua in the second post-visit war, Shem in the third post-visit war, and desolation in the fourth post-visit war all have some root in the fact that Mormon gathered his people to a single location. Again, one can see Mormon using applied history, as he was in some way duplicating the actions of the consolidated settlement. He was seeing the strength that comes from physical unity. As I just mentioned, by reminding his people of their covenants before the Battle of Shem, Mormon was seeking to use the power of spiritual unity. Unity is the only thing that allows us to come off conqueror. Individually, we must be unified with God through the Holy Ghost, and collectively, we must be unified with each other as families, congregations, and communities of believers. An early 18th century Flemish proverb that has been regularly attributed to Benjamin Franklin on the signing of the American Declaration of Independence is, quote, we must all hang together or we shall assuredly hang separately, close quote. In times of difficulty, the greatest opportunity for success is afforded through intellectual, spiritual, and sometimes physical unity. Power comes through purity. This is closely connected to the idea of unity, in that unity with God through the Holy Ghost is best achieved through spiritual purity. Mormon consistently emphasized the importance of righteousness to have strength. He did this throughout his editorial commentary of the earlier stories that I have touched on throughout this podcast series, but here he does so in the negative by pointing out the weakness in wickedness. 
If I feel weak as I struggle to obey the commandments and honor my covenants with God, it is certain that I will be weaker without my attempts at obedience and honor. The enemy, adversary, or opponent would have us believe that our effort is what is exhausting and weakening us. But it is our effort to do and be good that gives us the power we must have. The Nephites of Mormon's day confused earthly success with actual power, and in so doing, they abandoned any true power and were left with only their own strength, and that failed them, and they were swept away. Conclusion The three wars discussed here represent a significant set of experiences for Mormon, and it was in this environment that Mormon was translating and abridging the record that we have as the Book of Mormon. We can see some of the lessons Mormon probably learned from these wars in the stories that he selected for inclusion in the Book of Mormon. We can also see the reasons for his frustrated comments throughout the book. He was writing about the short-sightedness and short memories of men as he watched his own people be slaughtered in this unnecessary and futile seesaw war between two cities and two lands, that of Tiancum and Desolation that served to end the fourth post-visit war. To understand Mormon, it is helpful to recognize his time and his frustrations. These frustrations strike me as similar to those that Heavenly Father must feel as he watches his own children continue to look only at what they can see or think about only what they remember or act on only what they feel at that moment. Such decisions lead all of us to the same mistakes that Mormon briefly describes and so vehemently criticizes in his peers. The next episode discusses the fifth and final post-visit war, as well as the last full war described in the Book of Mormon. The coming episode also includes a detailed discussion of the Battle of Hill Cumorah. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.